You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can send me a message and find all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up is a story written by Tara Yarlagada, published at Inverse.com. One of the world's deadliest killers lurks all around us in the air we breathe and the products we consume. Yes, we're talking about pollution. And it's not going away. A new report published Tuesday in the Lancet Planetary Health finds that pollution is still killing a staggering number of people worldwide, predominantly in lower- and middle-income countries. But pollution is a severe threat to the health of every single person on the planet, the report authors urge. Quote, People in the United States need to be concerned about these findings, Philip Landrigan, a co-author of the report and director of Boston College's Global Pollution Observatory, tells Inverse. The recent findings from the Lancet Commission on Pollution and Health are actually an update to a pollution report published five years ago, when the researchers first analyzed premature deaths from pollution. The 2017 report found pollution was the most significant environmental risk factor globally for human mortality. Sadly, that fact hasn't changed at all in the past five years, and in some ways has gotten worse, according to the new report, which uses data from the Global Burden of Diseases, Injuries, and Risk Factors Study 2019 to assess the impact of pollution on human health. The report's most damning conclusion, 9 million people around the globe die prematurely due to pollution each year. The World Health Organization reports that there were 55.4 million deaths in 2019, meaning that pollution causes nearly one in six deaths worldwide. More than 90% of these deaths occur in lower- and middle-income countries, predominantly in parts of Asia and Africa. Quote, What the report shows is that the number of deaths caused by pollution has not changed in four years, Landrigan said. India and China lead the way with more than 2 million pollution deaths occurring in each country in 2019. But the U.S. accounted for 215,000 pollution-related deaths each year, according to Landrigan. Pollution-related deaths in the U.S. averaged 43.6 deaths per 100,000 people, considerably higher than other high-income countries like Finland, which averaged 29 deaths per 100,000 people. Air and water pollution have improved greatly since the formation of the EPA in the 1970s, but we still have a long way to go in the United States, and chemical pollution is silently getting worse, Landrigan adds. 
There are some bright spots in the report which highlight that the deaths from traditional pollution, such as household pollution related to lack of clean water or air pollution from cooking smoke, have declined due to significant government and charitable initiatives. But on the other hand, rising pollution deaths from modern pollution resulting from industrialization have increased by 66% since 2000, effectively offsetting the reduction in deaths from traditional pollution. Ambient or environmental air pollution is the leading cause of death, leading to 6.5 million deaths each year. The remaining deaths are due to lead poisoning, a significant problem for children, and chemical pollution. The report also found significant gender differences in pollution-related deaths. Women and children typically die from water pollution, whereas men perish more from air and lead pollution. In sum, global pollution is a public health threat greater than that of war, terrorism, malaria, HIV, tuberculosis, drugs, and alcohol, according to the report. In addition to highlighting the staggering death toll from pollution, the report also reveals how little the global community has failed to act on such a severe threat to public health since the last report in 2017. Rachel Kupka, report co-author and executive director of the Global Alliance on Health and Pollution, tells Inverse the response to the 2017 Lancet report has been, quote, anemic. We alerted the world to this really large problem five years ago. Not much has really happened, Kupka said. Absent urgent action by governments and bodies like the United Nations, the pollution problem will only worsen. According to Landrigan, deaths from air pollution are projected to double by 2050. Compared to higher income countries in North America and the EU, lower and middle income countries have seen comparatively higher death rates from pollution. The reason behind the rising pollution mortality rates in lower and middle income countries are complicated, but have to do primarily with increased industrialization in these countries, including greater reliance on fossil fuels, and lack of stringent monitoring of pollution, as well as insufficient international financing to curb pollution. Pollution is also often seen as an environmental issue rather than a health issue. It lacks a significant funding and political attention given to other public health concerns, even though the latest Lancet report finds pollution is a, quote, major risk factor for non-infectious diseases on par with smoking, substance abuse, and unhealthy diets. We're trying to draw attention to this fact and say that this is really an issue of public health scale, and it's actually getting worse, Kupka adds. Lead poisoning can also cause serious cognitive damage in children, Children with lead concentrations exceeding 5 micrograms per deciliter of blood often score 3 to 5 points lower on IQ tests than children with lower blood levels. According to the report, more than 800 million children have blood lead concentrations that exceed these levels. For those children, this is actually a health emergency for them, Kupka says. Lead poisoning doesn't just affect individuals, but society at large. The report authors state that lead-related IQ issues contribute to global economic losses of nearly $1 trillion. Quote, We cannot continue to ignore pollution. We are going backward, the report gravely cautions. Despite the grim prognosis, there are ways forward to reduce the striking death toll from pollution, according to experts. The first thing, we need to draw way more attention and funding to the subject of pollution, and fast. 
there are few global agreements to specifically address pollution efforts, further hindering efforts to curb pollution. Quote, the greatest need is for policymakers within countries and in the UN agencies to make pollution prevention a high priority and to put serious funding into pollution control, Landrigan says. In addition to greater funding, Kupka says that governments within lower- and middle-income countries need to be able to prioritize pollution within their own development agendas. One way to accomplish this is by bringing together leaders from various government ministries to discuss and tackle pollution, a model developed by the Global Alliance on Health and Pollution, known as the Health and Pollution Action Plan. But it will be hard to eliminate pollution-related deaths if we don't target its key source, fossil fuels. The report's authors are clear. We need to devote the same urgency to tackling pollution that we do to the climate crisis. Oh, hopefully more. Recognizing that pollution, primarily from burning fossil fuels, also contributes to global warming. Quote, Lasting control of pollution and prevention of the diseases that it causes will require massive government-supported transition away from gas, oil, and coal to clean renewable energy. Landrigan concludes. And the pollution from fossil fuels, not the only pollution that is dangerous and leading to health impacts and early deaths. This piece is by Dino Grandoni. This is published at WashingtonPost.com. The Environmental Protection Agency warned Wednesday that a group of human-made chemicals found in the drinking water, cosmetics, and food packaging used by millions of Americans poses a greater danger to human health than regulators previously thought. The new health advisories for a ubiquitous class of compounds known as polyfluoroalkyl and perfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, underscore the risk facing dozens of communities across the country. Linked to infertility, thyroid problems, and several types of cancer, these, quote, forever chemicals can persist in the environment for years without breaking down. Quote, people on the front lines of PFAS contamination have suffered for far too long, EPA Administrator Michael Regan said in a statement. That's why EPA is taking aggressive action. The guidance aims to prompt local officials to install water filters or at least notify residents of contamination. But for now, the federal government does not regulate the chemicals. Health advocates have called on the Biden administration to act more quickly to address what officials from both parties describe as contamination crisis that has touched every state. Quote, Today's announcement should set off alarm bells for consumers and regulators, said Melanie Benish, legislative attorney at the Environmental Working Group, a nonprofit organization. These proposed advisory levels demonstrate that we must move much faster to dramatically reduce exposures to these toxic chemicals. Since the 1940s, chemical makers have used the highly durable compounds to make non-stick cookware, moisture-repellent fabrics, and flame-retardant equipment. But that same toughness against water and fire, which made the chemicals profitable, allowed them to accumulate in nature and build up in the body with long-term health effects. Agency officials assessed two of the most common ones, known as PFOA and PFOS, in recent human health studies, and announced Wednesday that lifetime exposure at staggeringly low levels of 0.004 
and 0.02 parts per trillion respectively can compromise the immune and cardiovascular systems and are linked to decreased birth weights. Those drinking water concentrations represent, quote, really sharp reductions from previous health advisories set at 70 parts per trillion in 2016, said Eric Olson, a senior strategic director for Natural Resources Defense Council and advocacy group. The announcement, he added, sends an important signal to get this stuff out of our drinking water. More significantly, the EPA is preparing to propose mandatory standards for the two chemicals this fall. Once finalized, water utilities will face penalties if they neglect to meet them. The advisories will remain in place until the rule comes out. The EPA also said Wednesday that it is offering $1 billion in grants to states and tribes through the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law to address drinking water contamination. The advisory's levels are so low that they are difficult to detect with today's technology. Some lawmakers, including Senator Shelley Moore Capito, the top Republican on the Senate Environment and Public Works Committee, said in a statement that this meant the new guidance is impractical. Quote, EPA's announcement will only increase confusion for water systems compliance efforts and further complicate risk communication to the public. The American Chemistry Council, the chemistry industry's main trade group, said in a statement that it supports developing enforceable standards for these long-lasting compounds. But it faulted the EPA for issuing the advisories before outside experts on the agency's science advisory board had finished reviewing the underlying research, suggesting the process is, quote, fundamentally flawed. Quote, rather than wait for the outcome of this peer review, EPA has announced new advisories that are 3,000 to 17,000 times lower than those released by the Obama administration in 2016, it said. Already in the United States, manufacturers have largely replaced PFOA and PFOS with other fluorinated compounds. The EPA determined that two of those alternatives, dubbed Gen X and PFBS, also are dangerous to ingest even at relatively low levels, according to a review of recent research on mice. Among the communities hit hardest with contamination are those near military bases, where PFAS-laden foams were used for decades to fight jet fuel fires. Many residents in Oscoda, Michigan, for instance, have heeded warnings from state health officials and stopped drinking untreated well water and eating deer hunted near the now-shuttered Wurtsmith Air Force Base. Quote, there still is no plan in place for the cleanup, said Anthony Spaniola, an attorney and co-chair of the Great Lakes PFAS Action Network, whose family has a lakeside home in Escoda. The Department of Defense, quite frankly, has mismanaged this site, bordering on reckless. Spaniola hopes the new health advisories mean the military will, quote, change the scope of what they need to clean up. In North Carolina, Emily Donovan's family of four started carrying around bottled water and installed a filter under their sink after PFAS were discovered in and around Cape Fear River. Instead of asking parents to donate cookies and cupcakes, schools request bottles of water for dances and other events. It's a layer of stress that we all live with now, said Donovan, now an activist who co-founded Clean Cape Fear and is on the leadership team of the National PFAS Contamination Coalition. You're constantly wondering, she added, is there something inside of me? Is there something inside of my children? Regan, who served as North Carolina's top environmental official before joining the EPA, ordered the chemical company Chamores to stop the compounds from trickling into the river. 
On Wednesday, the company took issue with the analysis the EPA used to craft its latest guidance. Quote, We are already using state-of-the-art technologies at our sites to abate emissions and remediate historical releases, Shamor said in a statement. We are evaluating our next steps, including potential legal action to address the EPA's scientifically unsound action. While the agency is planning to regulate two PFAS, thousands of distinct compounds have been discovered. Many health advocates say federal regulators need to crack down on the compounds as a group. Quote, we can't continue this whack-a-mole approach to regulating them, Olson said. We'll never be finished in anyone's lifetime. Radhika Fox, who heads the Office of Water at the EPA, said the agency is considering more sweeping regulations of the class of compounds. Quote, we are exploring options to propose a rule that is for groups, not just PFOA and PFOS, she told reporters. And next up, a piece published at EurasiaReview.com. New research documents for the first time the pollution of public water supplies caused by shale gas development, commonly known as fracking, and its negative impact of infant health. These findings call for closer environmental regulation of the industry as levels of chemicals found in drinking water often fall below regulatory thresholds. Quote, in this study, we provide evidence that public drinking water quality has been compromised by shale gas development, said Elaine Hill, Ph.D., an associate professor with the University of Rochester Departments of Public Health, Sciences, Economics, and Obstetrics and Gynecology. Our findings indicate that drilling near an infant's public water source yields poorer birth outcomes and more fracking-related contaminants in public drinking water. The new paper, which appears in the Journal of Health Economics, is co-authored by Hill and Lala Ma, Ph.D. with the University of Kentucky. Hill's previous research was the first to link shale gas development to drinking water quality and has examined the association between shale gas development and reproductive health and the subsequent impact on later educational attainment, higher risk of childhood asthma exacerbation, higher risk of heart attacks, and opioid deaths. Her research brings an important perspective to the policy discussion about fracking, which has often emphasized the immediate job creation and economic benefits without fully understanding the long-term environmental and health consequences for communities in which drilling occurs. This new study is a complex examination of the geographic expansion of shale gas drilling in Pennsylvania from 2006 to 2015, during which more than 19,000 wells were established in the state. Hill and Ma mapped the location of each new well in relation to groundwater sources that supply public drinking water and linked this information to maternal residences served by those water systems on birth records and U.S. Geological Service groundwater contamination measures. This data set allowed the two to pinpoint infant health outcomes, specifically preterm birth and low birth weight before, during, and after drilling activity. Preterm birth and low birth weight are associated with a range of negative outcomes, including higher risk for developing behavioral and social-emotional problems and learning difficulties. Other studies have shown elevated levels of chemicals associated with fracking and surface water. However, these levels often tend to be below federal guidelines, are not monitored closely, and even if detected, 
do not rise to levels that trigger remediation. The new study indicates that fracking-related chemicals, including dangerous volatile organic compounds, are making their way into groundwater that feeds municipal water systems, and that the potential for contamination is greatest during the pre-production period when a new well is established. With only 29 out of more than 1,100 shale gas contaminants regulated in drinking water, the results suggest that the true contamination level is higher. The study specifically finds that every new well drilled within one kilometer of a public drinking water source was associated with an 11 to 13% increase in the incidence of preterm births and low birth weight in infants exposed during gestation. Quote, these findings indicate large social costs of water pollution generated by an emerging industry with little environmental regulation, said Hill. Our research reveals that fracking increases regulated contaminants found in drinking water, but not enough to trigger regulatory violations. This adds to a growing body of research that supports the reevaluation of existing drinking water policies and possibly the regulation of the shale gas industry. And in addition to the pollution from water, the noise pollution from fracking and other sources also has significant negative health impacts. This piece is published at acc.org. Living in a noisy environment can be annoying, but it might also harm your health. People experiencing high levels of noise from cars, trains, or planes were more likely to suffer a heart attack than people living in quieter areas, according to a study presented at the American College of Cardiology's 71st Annual Scientific Session. Quote, When people talk about pollution, they're usually talking about particles in the air or water, said Abel E. Moreira, M.D., professor of medicine in the Division of Cardiology at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, and the study's lead author. But there are other forms of pollution, and noise pollution is one of these. The study analyzed heart attack rates among nearly 16,000 New Jersey residents hospitalized for heart attack in 2018 using data from the MIDAS database, a repository of all cardiovascular hospitalizations in the state. The average daily transportation noise experienced at home was calculated using data from the state's Bureau of Transportation Statistics. Patients were divided into those experiencing high levels of transportation noise, an average of 65 decibels or higher over the course of the day, and those with low noise exposure, a daily average of less than 50 decibels. A noise level of 65 decibels is similar to a loud conversation or laughter. Since noise levels were averaged over the course of the day, Moreira said that many people may have experienced periods of relative quiet that were interrupted by louder bursts such as trucks trains, or aircraft going by. Overall, results found that 5% of hospitalizations for heart attacks were attributable to elevated high noise levels in the state. The heart attack rate was 72% higher in places with high transportation noise exposure, with these areas seeing 3,336 heart attacks per 100,000 people, compared with 1,938 heart attacks per 100,000 people in quieter areas. Based on the relative rates of heart attack in different locations, the researchers calculated that high noise exposure accounted for about 1 in 20 heart attacks in the state. 
The study is among the first to examine noise and heart disease in the U.S., but the findings align with several previous studies conducted in Europe. New Jersey is a state with many dense urban areas in close proximity to roadways, train lines, and three major airports. Moreira said other urban areas with similar infrastructure and transportation noise would likely see a similar pattern. Quote, As cardiologists, we are used to thinking about many traditional risk factors such as smoking, hypertension, or diabetes, Moreira said. This study and others suggest maybe we should start thinking about air pollution and noise pollution as additional risk factors for cardiovascular disease. While the study did not investigate the biological mechanisms behind the association, Moreira said noise can cause chronic stress, disturbances in sleep, and emotional distress such as anxiety and depression, which could impact cardiovascular health. Chronic stress is known to cause hormonal changes linked with inflammation and changes in the blood vessels that are associated with heart disease. Living near roadways and other transportation infrastructure also means greater exposure to vehicle exhaust and other forms of particulate air pollution. Previous studies have linked particulate air pollution with cardiovascular damage and increased rates of heart disease. Air pollution and noise go hand in hand, Moreira said. The question is, how much of this effect is due to particle pollution and how much is noise? Researchers are beginning to disentangle those factors, but Moreira said further research is needed to elucidate the effects of noise pollution on heart health. The researchers did not attempt to account for demographic, socioeconomic, or other health risk factors in their analysis, and they suggest further research could help tease apart the effect of noise pollution from these other factors. In addition, Moreira said the study did not account for noise exposure at work or other locations. As a next step, the team plans to examine the data in more detail for insights into which sources of transportation noise may have the greatest health impact. Moreira said that a variety of policy interventions could help to reduce an individual's exposure to transportation noise at home, even in urban areas. Examples include better enforcement of noise ordinances, infrastructure to block road noise, rules for air traffic, low noise tires for vehicles, and better noise insulation for buildings. And finally in this episode, how do we react to these kinds of issues and these kinds of uh, findings from scientific studies? And how do we react as the public when our elected officials, when our governments don't react? This piece is written by Mark Haywood and is published at dailymaverick.co.za. In the early 1980s, U.S. playwright Larry Kramer penned an article he furiously titled, What Are You Doing to Save My Fucking Life? Kramer was writing on behalf of gay men like himself who were dying of acquired immune deficiency syndrome, AIDS, in growing numbers. Kramer's ire was primarily directed at the U.S. government, clinical researchers, and the big pharmaceutical companies that manufacture medicines. But it was also aimed at other AIDS activists who Kramer condemned for being quiescent and captured. Anger can be life-saving energy, and it took the unfiltered anger of activists like Kramer, who died in 2020, to bring into being organizations like ACT UP, 
the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power and catalyze a political movement around AIDS. As the epidemic spread, so did activist organizations, and over the next 15 years, AIDS activism spread to developing countries, inspiring activists and organizations, including the Treatment Action Campaign, which I helped found in faraway South Africa in 1998. With hindsight, we can see how targeted anger helped shatter the inertia and complacency around HIV-AIDS. It shattered a status quo that would otherwise have allowed queers and poor black people to die if they would only have stayed quiet about it. By 2022, savvy activism has contributed to saving 50 million lives by compelling the development of political will by governments in the United Nations. Activism also put Big Pharma under sufficient pressure to make their drugs affordable to poor people in developing countries, forcing the funding and rollout of antiretroviral treatment programs, even to the most discarded populations. Today, in the face of the climate catastrophe, people in developing countries and people of color in rich countries, those who bear the brunt of inequality, might well be demanding the same answer about global heating. Let's say it again. What are you doing to save our fucking lives? This is not a rude or hysterical question. It is not an alarmist plea for protection against a theoretical future threat. It is a now question. In 2018 alone, according to the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center, IDMC, 17.2 million people in 144 countries were internally displaced due to natural disasters. In the decade between 2008 and 2018, says the IDMC, climate change forced the migration of 265 million people. Climate refugees, to put it impolitely. By 2021, it was calculated that climate change was already causing 5 million excess deaths a year. The vast majority of these deaths occur in developing countries, where poor people continue to die prematurely of the things they usually die of, except there's a new determinant in town, climate change. And as the latest April 2022 IPCC report shows, inaction means it's only going to get worse and worse. But because these excess deaths are out of sight and rarely attributed to climate change, they're kept out of the media and so mostly out of mind of the world's elites. Western governments and the multilateral institutions of the UN that they have captured have yet to develop a conscience over the untold harm their carbon emissions are causing. And on the side of the poor, there isn't enough anger yet, so there isn't enough action. In his 2021 book, How to Spend a Trillion Dollars, Attend Global Problems We Can Actually Fix, Rowan Hooper states the obvious. He provides evidence to show there is no technical or economic barrier to a just energy transition. The barrier is political at every level. I say obvious because after 20 years of law-abiding activism, in the face of incontrovertible science, by now it should be clear that just as with the AIDS epidemic, political will to seriously confront the climate crisis will not develop spontaneously from above. It will come only after a fight that will have to be driven by a historically unprecedented mobilization of citizen activists from below. Tragically, though, at this moment, the climate movement feels a bit stuck. There's lots of outrage in theater, but not enough movement building. 
Why? Throughout history, civil society has been a weather vane for emerging issues. This is because it is always closer to ground zero than governments. It senses issues before they become, quote, big issues. It uses activism to force them onto the agenda of the media and later government. However, activism, too, is usually colored by class and privilege. To be successful in changing the world, it, too, has to go through its own evolution, and whether it does or not determines its impact. In this sense, climate and environmental activism are no different from AIDS activism. Its modern incarnation began in the 1960s, starting in the North, long before it was felt as an issue in developing countries. It was catalyzed by exposés like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, and the first largely overlooked warnings from scientists about the dangers of global heating. By the early 2000s, a revolution was underway. For example, in his book, Blessed Unrest, environmentalist Paul Hawken claimed that by 2007, there were one to two million organizations across the globe working on environmental justice. Optimistically, he called this, quote, the largest social movement in history, claiming that it was restoring grace, justice, and beauty to the world. But Hawkins' predictions underestimated the challenges. Environmental movements remained marginalized, stigmatized, and in parts of the world, persecuted until in the past decade, a new radicalism erupted through campaigns like Extinction Rebellion and youth movements like Fridays for Future, inspired by Greta Thunberg. At every stage, activists have sought to inject urgency, boldness, and imagination into official processes, and there's no doubt they have had an impact. Incrementally, their influence has been felt in multilateral fora like the Earth Summit in Rio in 1992, leading to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and later the Paris Agreement, struck in 2015. Most recently, activists descended on COP26 held in Glasgow in November 2021 and organized the largest ever global day of action for climate change, with an estimated 100,000 people taking to the streets in Glasgow. But it wasn't enough. That is why, just like the AIDS movement before it, the climate justice movement is now having to face up to its demons. When the AIDS movement began in the mid-1980s, it too was located in developed countries among middle-class people who found it outrageous to contemplate dying in their 20s and 30s. Their campaigns were inspiring, but AIDS activism only acquired its political and moral power when it became a representative global movement. That took more than a decade. The same is happening with the climate crisis. Even though people in the global south are bearing the brunt of climate death and disruption, and are the least protected against future cyclones and storms, literally. In my part of the world, activists are still having to fight for basic political freedoms, as well as for the socioeconomic rights, such as access to sufficient food, clean water, health care, and basic education. To the global south, the climate crisis is often hard to distinguish from other depredations of authoritarianism, capitalism, and corruption that are causing mass hunger, disease, violence, and other miseries. In South Africa, the most unequal country in the world, according to the World Bank, mass unemployment, now 35.3%, together with inequalities in access to health, education, and food, are still front of mind or front of belly. Only recently has there been a spurt in climate-related activism. In the past six months, NGOs initiated successful public interest litigation to challenge deadly air pollution in the province of Mpumalanga, 
where coal-fired power stations have made the air pollution as bad as anywhere in the world, to halt Amazon's attempts to build a new Africa HQ on a historic wetland in central Cape Town, and against Shell's efforts to conduct a seismic survey for fossil fuels off the west coast of South Africa. Organizations such as the Amadiba Crisis Committee, based in rural villages in a part of the Eastern Cape, who are fighting to stop the mining of ecologically sensitive areas, are valorized as Davids in a fight against multinational Goliaths. And so belatedly, activism is catalyzing government action on the climate crisis. In 2020, a presidential climate commission was established. In 2021, South Africa adopted a more ambitious target for reducing its carbon emissions, and a climate change bill is expected to be passed by Parliament before the end of the year. Yet the climate justice movement still only numbers several thousand people and has not taken root in trade unions, faith-based organizations, or poor communities, even though these are the people most at risk. The trillion-dollar question is how climate activism in South Africa and internationally goes to scale and unleashes its power. Up to now, climate activists have worked from the same activist toolbox as the AIDS movement, using protests, civil disobedience, and litigation, mobilizing the media, shaming politicians and fossil fuel czars, building alliances with scientists and sympathetic governments from countries that have recognized their vulnerability, like small island states. But despite these commendable efforts, it's not enough. The too little, too slowly responses to climate activism have exposed the extent to which Western governments in particular will promote the form but deny the fruits of participatory democracy. This exposes the extent to which big fossil fuels have captured and corrupted politicians of all persuasions. In the face of the AIDS activist pressure, Big Pharma eventually had to drop prices and profits on essential antiretroviral drugs, but Big Fossil Fuel is proving a more difficult foe than Big Pharma. If the aim of advocacy is to shift policy and practice, then climate activists are fast discovering that there is some practice beyond their reach. Witness, for example, the gulf between U.S. President Biden's convenient rhetoric on climate change and his timid practice. Even in a relatively new constitutional democracy like South Africa's, where Big Fossil is less well embedded in political structures, and where there exists enormous opportunities for creating jobs and new economic pathways through renewable energy, the violence of inaction goes on. Here, Big Fossil is propped up by a faction in the governing ANC that is still committed to mining coal and other fossil fuels. At its worst, it has resorted to murder. At its mildest, it has tried to cloud issues by accusing environmental activists of having an imperialist agenda and representing colonialism of a special type. This would be laughable if it wasn't catastrophic, because in this standoff, civil society does not have the luxury of much time to refine its strategy and, quote, theory of change. In developed and developing countries alike, climate change is now triggering a vicious spiral that is a threat to even the attenuated democratic freedoms we have now. What do I mean? In July 2019, Philip Alston, then the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, issued a report to the UN Human Rights Council on poverty and climate change that joined the dots between climate catastrophe, human rights, and the future of democracy. Eschewing the use of expletives a la Kramer, Alston warned of states responding to climate change, quote, 
by augmenting government powers and circumscribing some rights. He predicted immense and unprecedented challenges to governance and that growing inequality and of even greater levels of deprivation among some groups will likely stimulate nationalist, xenophobic, racist, and other responses. In parts of the world, Alston's hypothesis is already being borne out, and should we need further persuasion, COVID-19 has been a salutary lesson of how in this age of anxiety and anger, governments respond to crisis by limiting, not deepening, democratic rights. These are reasons why I believe we are at a watershed moment for climate activism. Temporarily knocked back by COVID-19 lockdowns and restrictions, civil society now needs to use democracy to its full potential. But side by side with this, it will have to build its political power, will have to reach and convince tens of millions, not tens of thousands. While keeping focus, it will have to ally with class struggles for social justice and equality. It will have to move from mobilizing fear to mobilizing hope, popularizing and persuading people of feasible alternatives and forcing political will. It will be a struggle for and over power. This means that much like generations of freedom fighters against racism in South Africa and elsewhere, Climate activists may have to take risks with their own freedom or risk losing both the possibility of climate justice and the bigger battle for democracy. The stakes could not be higher. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. If you want to check out all the back episodes, you can go to youcan'tbeneutral.com to find them there. You can also follow on Twitter at YCB Neutral. And now, a moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. When working people found out that the government is not going to do anything about the 12-hour day, they organized, they went out on strike, and they won, they won the 8-hour day. When black people in the South saw that the government, not just the state governments, but the national government, was not going to do anything about racial segregation or brutality in the South, then black people uh, organized, they demonstrated, they went to prison, they were beaten, some of them were killed, but they created a national commotion which finally brought democracy alive. And that's the situation we're in today. We need to bring democracy alive today, and it requires uh, the actions of uh, ordinary people. And uh, we, we, mu we mustn't despair about the fact that the government has all the power. The government has the FBI. They have all their secret apparatus. Uh, they, they are watching us. I don't think I'm paranoid. <laughs> they really are watching us. So our job is to watch them. Despite all the trappings of government, which indicate that uh, they are all-powerful, they have the military, they have the money, they have the, the, uh, the security apparatus and so on, the uh, fact is, historically, and here's where history comes in handy, uh, the most powerful governments have had to change policy when the people demanded it. When an outcry grew so great, when the pressure from below grew so great, and it became threatening to the government, then the government had to change policy. We have seen governments toppled. We have seen tyrannies toppled all over the world that seem to be impregnable. You know, in the Philippines, suddenly a, a dictatorship, Marcos is totally in charge. He wakes up one morning and there are a million people in the streets. 
he leaves. Really, this has happened in place after place. In Haiti, Duvalier jumps on a plane, quick, get out of here, because the people are rising up. The fact is governments, like all powerful entities, are vulnerable. The government needs people to obey it in order to keep power. When people stop obeying, the government loses its power. Corporations need people to work for it. When people stop working for corporations, then the corporation is helpless. We saw this in the 1930s, General Motors and Ford, huge corporations. We're not going to have a union here. But when the workers left the factories, or even when they sat in on the factories and wouldn't let, wouldn't let production go on, General Motors was helpless. And so it's important to keep in mind that the power of the establishment rests on our obedience. Uh, when we start disobeying, and that's where Thoreau comes in, <laughs> and that's where, that's where the great people in our history come in, that's where Helen Keller comes in, and Emma Goldman comes in, and Mark Twain comes in, and Eugene Debs, and Fannie Lou Hamer, and Martin Luther King, that's where they come in. And uh, when that happens, then something will change.